So it is not a debate, it is not up for debate, that we live in a broken world. A world that is filled with chaos, a world that is filled with war, a world that is filled with division, a world that is filled with fighting. It's not up for debate. We can see it. We've seen it throughout human history. As you study history, you see history is marked by wars. History is defined by wars. And all you have to do is turn on the news today and you see more wars, more division, more destruction. And even in places where there aren't wars, where there isn't fighting, there is still division. I don't know of a single country that doesn't have some form of division within its walls, within its borders. Everyone wants to live in some form of utopia, right? Everyone wants to live in, this, in what they would consider this perfect world. But there's a couple problems with that. And one is, everybody has a different definition of what a perfect world would look like. But another one is, even if we could agree on what a perfect world looked like, there are disagreements on how to get there. And so what we do is we end up dividing on, on how to get to a perfect world or what even a perfect world would look like. And then what happens is we see the other side as the enemy. And then what we do is it's a short step from you're the enemy or I disagree with you, you're now the enemy to you're not even worthy of life. And so what happens is we begin to dehumanize other people who are made in the image of God And pretty soon we start to commit atrocities because, well, they're not even human anyways. They're holding me back from my utopia, and so why shouldn't they be killed? Why shouldn't they be forced into a labor camp? It does not matter how great of a system we live in, there will be division. And it almost seems hopeless. And that is because without God, it is hopeless. Without God, there will always be division. Without God, there will always be wars. Without God, there will always be fighting. Without God, we are left to our own devices of destruction and destroying one another. But with God, there is hope. And that is what we will talk about today as we continue our study through Ephesians. We've titled this series, Better Together, because Ephesians really does outline how we are better together. So Paul, as in his typical fashion, begins giving uh, a great theology. So Chapter 1, 2, and 3, he's going to outline this great theology and these theological truths. And then once we get into chapter 4, then it's going to be, how do we apply this theology to our lives? So we start off in chapter 1, and we, we learned that God had blessed those who are chosen in Him. So those who are a part of the body of Christ, He has blessed. And we looked at some of the ways that He has blessed us. He has lavished 
His grace upon us. He has given us an inheritance. He has given us the Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance. He has forgiven our sins and our trespasses. He has given us every spiritual blessing. Not some, but every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then He transitions to a prayer. And in the prayer, He he prays that we would learn more about the hope that we have in Him. That we would continue to grow and mature in this hope that we have in Him. And not only that we would continue to grow and mature in the hope that we have in Him, but also that we would continue to grow and mature in the knowledge that we are His inheritance. That's one of those lines that for years, years I read over. And because He talks about an inheritance in the blessings part, I always just read it as, an inheritance I would acquire. Skipping over the fact that it is we who are His inheritance. And that should really blow our mind. That God treasures us enough to call us an inheritance. But that's not all that we would grow in. He also prays that we would grow in increasing knowledge of His immeasurably great power. That's pretty amazing to think about for a second there. His immeasurably great. You can't even measure it. There's no amount of kilowatts. There's no amount of measuring tape. There's no scale. There is nothing that can measure God's great power. And from the prayer, then he starts to transition to the body of the letter, to the, to the great theological thesis. Although we've already gotten so much theology from chapter 1. And in this, he starts off with who we were. That we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Dead, being without ability. And because we were without ability, we once walked following the course of the world, the prince of the power of the air. I heard one pastor describe it as this, that when you are dead and they throw you into a river, the current just brings you along, right? Dead people don't swim against the current. And so we are are dead in our trespasses and sins, and we're kind of thrown into the river, and because we are dead, we just follow the current of the world. And that's who we were. But God, being rich in mercy and love, made us alive together with Him. So we no longer have to just float with the current. We can actually swim. We can go where we want to. We can swim away from the dangers. We can swim away from the rapids. And then he emphasizes, for by grace you have been saved through faith, that it is not of our own works, that there's no way you could earn your salvation, that there's nothing you can do to work it, there's no way you can actually make yourself righteous. But it is all God's work that makes you righteous. He makes you holy. He makes you a saint. And then we get into verse 11. And that's what we're going to say today, verse 11 through 22. We'll read through it if you want to follow along. And then we'll kind of start to jump in and and discuss it a little bit more. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, 
having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. All right, we got a lot going on, so let's jump right in. So he starts off with therefore, and any time you get the therefore, you look at what's the therefore, therefore, right? That's, that's just one of those things that if you walk away and, and you roll your eyes every time you hear it, I'll think I have done my job. What's the therefore, therefore? So the therefore is there, we look back, right? So it is the grace that we have been saved. It's not our doing. It is not our works. We cannot boast. Because it is not of our own doing, because it is His grace, then look forward to remember. Because of this, we need to remember. And then He's going to outline what we need to remember. Because it's not our own works, because we can't earn our righteousness, because there's nothing you can do to make yourself more righteous. Remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh... This term Gentile just means that uh, everyone who is not Jew. In the Jewish world, there were two groups of people. There were Jews and non-Jews. That was it. So a Gentile is everyone who is non-Jew. So he's saying, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision. Now, our, our Bibles have kind of cleaned this up a little bit. I had to ask Jen how many times I can use the word foreskin in my sermon today because that's actually the literal translation here. So think about that. Therefore, remember at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called foreskin. This is a derogatory term. I don't know about you, but I don't necessarily want to be called foreskin. If you think about all that that means, how hurtful and divisive that might be, please don't give me that nickname, foreskin. But that's what they've been called. That's how they're known by the Jews. It's not a nice term. The Jew, this kind of shows you what the Jews are thinking of the Gentiles, right? If their nickname is foreskin, they're not thinking very highly of them. So we see that there is this division. That there is some tension between the Jews and the Gentiles. And he goes on, that you're called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. And he's not going to let the Jews off the hook here. He says, which is made in the flesh by hands. And what he's getting at here is that the Jews had totally changed the point 
of circumcision. If we remember all the way back to when circumcision started with Israel, it goes all the way back to the father Abraham. And God makes a covenant with Abraham. And in order to have a sign to remember this covenant, now this covenant was what's called a unilateral covenant. So there's two types of covenants, unilateral and bilateral. The Abrahamic, the Davidic covenants are unilateral. That means God's going to make it happen. It doesn't matter what Abraham does. God's going to make it happen. Later on, we'll get into the Mosaic Covenant, which is a bilateral covenant. And God, a bilateral covenant goes like this. God says, if you remain faithful to me and you don't worship other gods, then I will bless you. But if you are unfaithful and follow other gods, then I will raise up a nation to punish you, to discipline you. So that's a bilateral. It's an if-then. It's dependent upon our own actions. I should say the Jews' actions, because the Gentiles didn't have that covenant. But the covenant he made with Abraham was unilateral. And he says, Abraham, I'm going to do this thing for you. I'm going to make you a great nation, and I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to bless you so that you may bless the rest of the world. Through you, the whole world, all peoples will be blessed. And I'm going to make it happen. That's what God told Abraham. And then after he does that, he says, now go get circumcised as a symbol of this unilateral covenant. So the circumcision was really a symbol of God's grace. It wasn't of their righteousness. It's not that circumcision made the Jews, made the Israelites more righteous than the Gentiles. It was a symbol that God had poured his grace on the Israelites. But they had forgotten that. And in fact, by Second Temple Judaism, which is the era that Paul is writing in, they have, be, they have made it be a sign of their own self-righteousness. They began to think that they were somehow more righteous because of their circumcision. And in fact, they actually started making it so that, you know, they would kind of have this idea that if you were more circumcised, you were more righteous. That's a path that I don't think will go down today. But, but you can see how this self-righteousness came or developed. And so they thought that, that they were more righteous then. And so that's what Paul's saying, is that, that, that they've changed the, the symbol. That it's not a symbol of their righteous, but it's a symbol of God's grace. And then he gets back into it again. He says, remember. So through all three of the first chapters of Ephesians, there's only one command. Think about that for a second. You've got three chapters written to a church. And in the first three chapters, there's only one command. And it's used twice. That shows you it's a pretty important command. I think when we recall, when we remember who we were and who God has made us to be, it helps us remember God's grace. It helps us remember the gospel. It helps us remember that it's not of our own works. It helps us not to become full of pride, like I'm more righteous than you because of my behavior. It reminds me how far off I was from God and reminds me who I could be and how horrible I could be. And it helps me give grace to those who are living lives that are not connected to God. So he gives this command twice. Remember, 
that you were at that time, and now he's going to give us four things that they were before they came to know Christ. You were at that time separated from Christ. So if we look all the way back through chapter 1 and all of the blessings that we receive, you only can receive these blessings if you're in Christ. And then we look at the beginning of chapter 2, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but if you're in Christ, you're made alive. So if, if life and blessings come from being in Christ, being separated from Christ is a pretty big deal. And at that time, we were separated from Christ. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Now, Israel always thought of themselves as the elect. And it's important to note that the elect simply meant, it didn't mean that God loved them more. It meant that God had chosen them for a specific assignment. But once again, and we tend to do this too as a church, and we tend to do this as individuals, is we start to think that we're somehow special. And it didn't mean that they were more loved, it simply meant God had a special assignment. Not because they were greater, but because God was greater. God is greater. So we are alienated from the commonwealth. And because they had a special assignment from God, they had intimacy with God. They had the temple where God dwelt. And because... We were not. We didn't have that intimacy. We missed out on the intimacy with God that the Israelites had. And strangers to the covenants of promise. Now, we've already talked about that there were three different covenants. Two of them were bilateral, the Abrahamic covenant. Then there was the Davidic covenant. This is another unilateral covenant where God tells David, hey, I'm going to... to, bless you, and I am going to bring about a Messiah through your line. Now, this is unilateral. It doesn't doesn't matter what David's going to do. David could mess up. In fact, David did mess up. And God's saying, even if you mess up, I'm still going to make this thing happen. I am going to bring a Messiah through your line. These were the promises that God made to Israel. They could have intimacy, and that they knew that the Messiah was coming And that gave them hope. No matter how bad things got, no matter how divided the Israelites seemed, no matter even if there was a civil war and the north and the south split, and even if Babylon, Babylon came and took some captives away, it didn't matter because they still could hold on to the promise of God that there would be a Messiah coming. But we didn't have those promises. So as Gentiles, we typically faded away to pagan religions. And pagan religions, the, the, those gods were always made in our image, and men are fickle creatures. And so those gods were fickle creatures, and our only hope was that we could somehow appease some god. And really what it came down to, our hope was in ourselves. If only we could work hard enough. If only we could be good enough. If only we could do those things. Our hope was in ourself, and we know how easily we can disappoint. And still to this day, those who don't know Christ, where is their hope? 
But the Jews had a hope in a Messiah. And so that, that brings out that next line. Having no hope and without God in this world. Without the promises, without knowing that there would be a Messiah, there would be no hope. And then he gives us a contrasting conjunction. And it's a huge contrasting conjunction. This is who they were. This is who we were before we came to know Christ. That we were alienated. That we were lost. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Hallelujah. That's right. We've been brought near. We were alienated. We were strangers. We were without hope. But we don't have to live that way anymore. We have hope now. We have been brought near. We can have intimacy with God because of Christ and His work on the cross. And then he goes on to continue uh, explaining it. So uh, up till this point, it was a, a looking back at who we were. 14 through 18 is going to be Paul explaining how we have been brought near. And I want us to notice a change here. There is a change in pronouns. So he goes from that second person plural saying, you Gentiles, you were far off. And he's going to start saying a, a first person plural, we and are. And this shows a couple different things. One is that Jews also needed to be brought near. Although they had that intimacy with God, although they had promises, they still had some issues. We'll talk about that issue in a little bit. But also it means that there is no longer hostility between the two. So you were far off. You didn't have the promises. You didn't have the hope. And the Israelites always had it. But yet they were also far off from God. But also because of the law, there was a division. Because of circumcision and uncircumcision, there was a division. But that is no longer the case. And he's going to go ahead and explain that. For he himself is our peace. So we're going to run into this word peace four times in this one section. So four times, it's a pretty important word. And this Greek word is similar to the Hebrew word shalom. Which means not just like a lack of chaos... It doesn't mean a lack of conflict. Oftentimes when we define peace, we define it by what it's lacking, right? But peace, shalom, means so much more. It means to thrive and to flourish. To have a culture, a society, that doesn't just lack conflict, but is actually flourishing. So Christ Himself is our peace. Christ Himself is what makes us flourish. And I think it's important that we get rooted in this idea of flourishing in Christ because we have an idea of what flourishing means and usually if we're still getting pulled by the currents of the world, flourishing has a certain idea to it, doesn't it? Oftentimes it means flourishing has things, comfort, or a lack of conflict. But flourishing in Christ is joy. Joy in the midst of conflict. When all of the world seems to be falling apart, you can still have peace. You can still have shalom in Christ. 
I've talked about it a couple weeks ago that I've been reading uh, Jesus Freaks, which is a book about a bunch of different martyrs with my kids. And it's amazing to me how many martyrs throughout the centuries of Christianity go to the stake to be burned alive with peace. And as as they're lighting up the fire, the martyr is sitting on the stake praying for those who are getting ready to burn them. See, when we're in Christ, we have to totally reorient what shalom looks like. And it doesn't necessarily mean having lots of things. It doesn't necessarily mean having the perfect relationship with everyone around you. But it does mean that you can thrive and flourish in Christ. So, for He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one, made us, That's the idea here that the Jews and the Gentiles have now both been made one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So it is his work on the cross, that's the reference there, in his flesh, is his work on the cross that has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. So there was a dividing wall that created hostility. Now there's a lot of debate about what this dividing wall was, and some will look back to the temple. In the temple, especially during Second Temple Judaism, there was this great temple, and the first part of the temple, the first court of the temple, was called the Court of the Gentiles. And Gentiles were allowed to come into that court. But beyond that, to get closer into the temple, to get closer into the Holy of Holies, the Gentiles were not allowed. And in fact, there was a big wall, a dividing wall. And on that wall, there was a sign, and it was posted several areas in that wall, and it was a warning to Gentiles that if they came beyond that point, they would be killed. And the Romans allowed it. The Romans were like, yeah, go for it. If a Gentile comes into that area, kill him. That's how seriously they took this dividing wall. So that's one idea of what this dividing wall is. Another idea is that it was this figurative speech that the dividing wall is the law. And we can also see that the, divide, that the law brought about hostility, right? So if there's an actual dividing wall in the temple, Jews can't go beyond it. There's this idea that Jews begin to develop that they are better than the Gentiles because they can't even come into the Holy of Holies, or not the Holy of Holies, but they can't even come into the Jewish court. And then the Gentiles might begin to think, hey, why don't you let me in? You're not better than me. And so there's some hostility between the two groups there. But then some other people would say that it's, it's actually the law. The law, and that goes all the way back to what's called, it's the Mosaic Law, and it's a bilateral covenant. And that's the covenant that God lays out in Deuteronomy. The entire book of Deuteronomy is a rehashing of the Mosaic Law. And it's all the this, if you do this, then I will bless you. If you don't do that, then I will raise up a nation to discipline you. And so the Jews had to follow this law. Now, because the Jews followed the law, some would argue that it developed this hostility. That's part of the circumcision. That's part of their diet and and keeping Sabbath. There were cultural identity markers for Second Temple Judaism that the Second Temple Jew would say, I hold tight to these because these are what make me me. And it became a dividing line in culture. And so it developed some hostility. So I don't think it actually has to be an either-or. I think it's a both-and. When he talks about the, the breaking down and abolishing this dividing wall, first of all, when Christ died on the cross and he made a new 
mankind. He made a new group. That wall that separated the court of the Gentiles with the Jews, that was broken. But it was only broken because the law was abolished. Now the law what didn't just create hostility between two groups of men. The law also created hostility between man and God. And it wasn't the law's fault. The law, Paul later writes, that the law is a tutor to show us how we can never truly be righteous on our own. The law is a tutor to show us how actually depraved we are. Because we, in our own self-centeredness, kind of think that we can be good on our own, right? In fact, almost everyone I've known, I have asked a lot of people, are you a pretty good person? And it doesn't matter who they are and what they've done, almost every single person I have asked says, yeah, I'm a pretty good person. And I'm like, man, I, I just saw you steal from that person. But we do a good job of justifying our actions, right? So we do a good job of justifying what we do. And so we think we're pretty good. And so we need the law to show us how truly depraved we are. But how it created hostility between man and God is the Jews began to use it as a way of self-righteousness. Once again, it goes back to this legalism. That instead of having faith in God, they thought, well, God owes me. Because you see how, so, how righteous I am. Do you see how good I am in the law? Well, clearly God owes me. And so there develops this hostility between man and God. And so he continues, how does he break down uh, the dividing wall of hostility? By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Now, this is a direct reference to that Mosaic law once again. And some people, I mean, when you look at Jesus, Jesus said that he came to fulfill the law, right? So there might be a little bit of debate. Wait, did Jesus fulfill the law or abolish it? And once again, it's not an either or, it's a both and. This term abolish actually means to uh, make inactive. So he made the law inactive by fulfilling it. So when Christ fulfilled the law, when he lived that perfect life and then died on the cross for our inability to fulfill, fulfill the law, that made the law inactive. It, it, it totally fulfilled the law, therefore the law does no longer apply to our life. That's what's going on there. So by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances. So he, he fulfills the law. He abolishes that hostility. So now we can be one man. So he, de, he abolishes the hostility between the two groups, between the Jews and the Gentiles. But he also abolishes any hostility between us and God because he has fulfilled the law. Therefore, we no longer, going all the way back to verse 8, we no longer can, or 9, we can no longer boast about our own works because we realize that we couldn't fulfill the law and yet God has. And it is he who makes us righteous. So he's abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man. Now some of your translations at this point will say uh, has created in himself one new mankind. And I think that's a more accurate translation there. We read this and we might have a tendency to make, apply it individually. And though that is true, God has made you a new person That's not the point that he's getting at here. 
the point that he's getting out here is that these two groups, the Jews and the Gentiles, he has taken by fulfilling the law, therefore making it inactive, he has made these two groups one new group. In place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So we need to talk a little bit about this word reconcile. The the term reconcile means to make new. Now there's two things that he has made new. One is our relationship to him. There was enmity between the two of us. There was hostility between us and God. And when he fulfilled the law, He broke down the wall of hostility and he has made us a a new relationship with God. But but the second one is he has uh, reconciled the two groups. Because there was hostility, because there was animosity between Jews and Gentiles, when Christ fulfilled the law and died on the cross, there no longer needs to be animosity between the two groups. But it's also important to notice that reconciliation doesn't happen without recognizing that something is broken in the first place. So reconciliation is taking something that is broken and making it like it's new. So you couldn't even recognize that it was broken at one point. So uh, we just had to work on our wood-burning stove. Last year, the the airflow string broke, so I couldn't adjust the airflow. The only way we could adjust the airflow was opening the doors. Uh, and we lived like that for a while. And then all summer long, I told myself, I'm going to fix that wood-burning stove. And then it started getting cold, and I thought, wow, I really need to fix that wood-burning stove. But also what had happened is it had run too hot for a while, so the back started to fall apart. Uh, it has a catalyst, but the catalyst started falling apart. So I went ahead and I ordered, I took inventory of all the places where that wood stove was broken. And then I went and ordered and I I have replaced it. Now I didn't fully reconcile it because it doesn't look brand new, does it, Jen? Uh, But it it works. (laughs) It all works. However, had I never taken inventory and even just recognized that there was something broken there, There could never be any reconciliation. God has offered us reconciliation. And He will totally reconcile us with Him. But we do need to recognize that something is broken. That we broke the relationship between us and God. And when we do that, and we put our faith and trust in His work on the cross... He reconciles us to Him. So we don't have to do the work of reconciliation. We don't make the relationship new. But we do have to recognize that we broke the relationship. And then the way He reconciles us is He kill, he thereby killing the hostility. The hostility that was there, He kills and He makes us new. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. And so we see two groups of people here that he preached peace to. He preached peace to us, the Gentiles who were far off, who were lacking that intimacy with God. But he also has to preach to the Jews who were, although were near, who although 
enjoyed intimacy with God had become legalistic in their nearness to God. And so because they were struggling with legalism, they needed that peace preached to them. They needed to know that they didn't have to continue to jump through all these hoops to try to earn their righteousness, but that God had provided righteousness for them. In the church, we struggle with the same idea. And some of us grow up in a church. And we've heard the gospel. And yet, we still struggle with this idea that I am more righteous than that sinner over there because I never messed up like them. I never went out and got drunk. I waited until I was married. I did everything by the book, so God owes me. And the problem with that thinking is you will never measure up. And you've just realized, or you've just forgotten, I should say, that you never actually earned your own righteousness. All those things are good things, but they don't make you righteous. It is simply God who makes you righteous. And he came and preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we have access in one spirit to the Father. So this word for shows us that there is a, a way to, uh, to kind of test whether or not you have come close to God. For through him we have access in one spirit. It is that spirit. It is the Holy Spirit. It is the indwelling Holy Spirit that gives evidence of this new life. It is the indwelling Holy Spirit that gives evidence of this reconciliation. So then, because we have the evidence, because we have the indwelling Holy Spirit, you are no longer strangers and aliens. Strangers and aliens are uh, words that give us idea of people who, are, who don't belong. People who are far off, who don't belong. You don't belong here. You're a stranger. You're an alien. Have you ever felt... Like you didn't belong somewhere. Maybe that place was church. Maybe you experienced someone who was struggling with legalism who made you feel like this was not a place for you. Paul says you are no longer that stranger. You are no longer that alien. This is a place you belong. And it doesn't matter how great of a life you've lived or how wicked of a life you've lived. This is a place where you belong. You're no longer a stranger and alien. And then he gives us that contrasting conjunction again. But you are fellow citizens with the saints. If you've put your faith and trust in Christ, you are a saint. You've been made holy by God. You have been set apart for Him. you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. So then he gives us this picture of this building, this house that's being built up. And the foundation of the house is the apostles. And the prophets here is not the Old Testament. He's referring to New Testament prophets who were, this was a special office given to God, or given by God to certain people to help 
uh, uh, direct the church until the New Testament was fulfilled. So when the New Testament was filled up, that office of prophet started to uh, dwindle away. But the whole idea is that the foundation is built around the Word of God. That's the idea that he's driving here. So the foundation of our church is the Word. When we start to drift away from the Word, we start to drift away from our foundation. And what happens when you have a shaky foundation? The house begins to tumble. So the foundation is the Word of God. But then he goes on and he says, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone. So in those days, and in particular in uh, Jerusalem, most houses weren't built with sticks. Most houses were built with stone. And what you needed is uh, the, the first stone that you would lay was the cornerstone. And this was the most important stone. In fact, the cornerstone is what the entire foundation would be built off. If you got your cornerstone wrong, the entire house would be wrong. And so it needed to be this really uh, straight, square stone that the rest of the foundation would come off of. And when, as you were building, you would, you would look back to your cornerstone, and if you were coming off of your cornerstone, you would readjust. You would constantly be readjusting and coming back to that cornerstone to make sure everything lined up with your cornerstone. If for some reason you started to come away from the cornerstone, your house would need to be rebuilt. Everything centered around the cornerstone. So we've got a foundation that is built on the Word of God, but the Word of God looks back at the cornerstone and lets us know that that is what everything centers on. As a church, we need to be centered on the cornerstone that is Jesus Christ. When we lose sight of the cornerstone, our church begins to fail. When we lose sight of the cornerstone, that's when we begin to see divisions in the church. The cornerstone, Jesus Christ, is the center of the church at all times. And if at any time we begin to build the foundation, which is the Word, separate from the cornerstone, we'll lose the whole thing. When we as a church start to promote other theologies that are not rooted in Christ, the church begins to dwindle and fail. We have to have Christ as the cornerstone. And then we build up our theology based on the foundation, which is the Word of God, the Bible. If we miss that, then we might as well stop meeting as a church. So Jesus Christ Himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, and they, that's the point He's driving here, this whole structure, our entire church building, is being joined together what drives unity in the church? What brings us together as the church? It is the cornerstone Jesus Christ. If we lose sight of the cornerstone Jesus Christ, then we might as well go off on our own. But the whole building, the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So we see that Christ is the cornerstone, the Word is the foundation, and it is the Spirit that produces growth. We could do everything right, but if the Spirit isn't moving, 
we won't see growth. And in fact, there are some times when the Spirit is pruning. And as a church, when you experience pruning, you'll actually see some declining numbers. And that's okay. As long as Christ is your cornerstone and you've got the Word as your foundation, even if you're shrinking, that's okay. That's the Holy Spirit pruning. Knowing that if you stay focused on the cornerstone and you stay uh, solid on your foundation, the Spirit will also produce growth. Now what's interesting is he produces growth, growth so that we could be a dwelling place for God. We usually see this and we apply this individually and we talk about how our body is a temple for Christ. And there are scripture that, that would show us that. That's true. But it's also this church body gathered together. We are a dwelling place for God. So often in our culture, we emphasize the individual at the expense of the community. And what we see here is that God loves the individual and God loves the community. And that God has called us to community. And that God has called each one of us to be a part of this building that He is building up. And each one of us is an important part to this building that He is building up with Christ as the cornerstone and the Word as its foundation. And that is what brings unity. And one day, Christ will bring unity to the entire world. So what do you put your hope in? There is division throughout the world, and we have constantly seen division. There will continue to be division. Do you hope in politics? Do you hope in a government? Or is your hope in Christ? Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are the cornerstone and you have given us a foundation and that as a church, you are building us up. And we pray that as a church, you would help us to submit to your word. Help us to apply it. Help us to not have hostility towards you, nor towards others. But that we could have shalom with you, and shalom as a church in any circumstance. In your name we pray. Amen.